This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Number 111, December the 21st, 1985. I want to begin today by calling your attention to a calendar that I hope you will purchase. And meanwhile, before I tell you more about it, get yourself a piece of paper and a pencil. All of us have an obligation to pray for one another. It is in particular our obligation to pray for those of our fellowship, our faith, fellow Christians who are being persecuted. Behind the Iron Curtain, the persecution is severe and savage. It has only stepped up all the more in recent years because the Christians have grown numerically and their power is feared. There is a group that calls itself Issachar Frontier Missions Research that has put out a 1986 Soviet prayer calendar. Issachar is a group that uh, specializes in gathering and disseminating information concerning frontier mission fields. It works to provide information in particular on areas that are closed to us as Christians, Eastern Europe, the USSR, and other restricted access areas. It has regional reports that it sells, giving important information on the Baltic Northwest, the Western Periphery, the Central Russian Heartland, Soviet Central Asia, Siberia and the Far East, Russian Orthodoxy, Soviet Jewry, Soviet Islam, the Trans-Siberian Railway, and much, much more. The Soviet prayer calendar will give you, month by month, a commentary on some aspect of life in the Soviet Union. For example, for January, part of the text that you find on the top of the page and the bottom your calendar deals with identity and influence. They comment, notwithstanding the egalitarian-sounding Marxist principle of from each according to his ability to each according to his need or work, there is a growing evidence that much of today's Soviet social structure is based on other quite different notions. Here, sighed one Muscovite, a man doesn't receive according to his labor, but according to his social position. Party membership alone guarantees nothing. To get ahead, one must pass through what New York Times correspondent David Shipler describes as hidden apertures that slide mysteriously open to those armed with a proper rank or favor. The term nomenclatura refers both to the Soviet Union's upper-crust elite and to the system which guarantees their power and privilege, disparagingly referred to by some Russians as our communist nobility. The nomenclatura, including relatives, likely numbers upwards of several million people. Included in their ranks are party and government leaders, highly placed police and military commanders, top scientists, journalists, and editors and select cultural super-achievers like prima ballerina Maya 
Lysetskaya, our po poet, Yevgeny Yevtushenko. We have a caste system, nodded one senior citizen. Then a section still dealing with January on their lifestyle. The life of the Soviet ruling class is a closed one, and for good reason. For although Marx and Lenin declared that top-level pay should not exceed that of a skilled worker, typical nomenclaturists earn 10 to 15 times as much as ordinary citizens. Behind and beyond the higher earnings, however, lies an entire network of special stores, hospitals, and recreational establishments that cater exclusively to the nation's elite, all managed by a department of the Communist Party's Central Committee known simply as the Administration of Affairs. Moscow alone is said to have more than 100 secret retail outfits, uh, including cleaners, hairdressers, tailors, and food stores for the benefit of the powerful nomenclatura. According to former Moscow lawyer, Konstantin Simis, not only does the ruling elite have its own stores, it has its own theater ticket agency and its own pharmacy, which sells imported drugs unobtainable in ordinary drug stores. Many have their own cooks, maids, gardeners, and chauffeurs, and live in lavish quarters, which sometimes boasts art pieces from national galleries and museums. Though most Travel is by limousine, air and rail seats are available at a moment's notice. Then there's a section on spiritual needs, which describes the fear of these people knowing how oppressed the others are and how far beyond that of anything in the Western world are their standards of living. And they trust no one, not even those in the closest circles. And they comment here, For this reason Jews and other politically unreliable citizens are prevented from serving in elite hospitals. Especially feared, however, is the Christian Church, which challenges the nomenclatura's monopoly on truth and claims a private domain in individuals that the state cannot reach. Then you have, still for January, prayer points, and so on. Every month gives you a great deal of data. I urge you to write immediately to Issachar, I-S-S-A-C-H-A-R. The term comes from the name of a tribe in Israel described as men of understanding knew the spirit of the times. Write to Issachar, P.O. Box 30727, Seattle, Washington, 98103, and send them $10 and you will get this calendar. I urge you to take my suggestions seriously because we are very deficient in remembering persecuted people in our prayers. And with this calendar, your prayer, day by day, can be guided. On to something else now. I'm very grateful to two of you, Clint and Elizabeth Miller, for loaning me a book by Richard Druitt and Mark Redhead, published in England, entitled The Trial 
of Richard III. This book is quite remarkable. An actual trial was held in 1984, or perhaps it was earlier this year, but I think it was last year. And it was held uh, for an audience, a television audience. Historians were brought to testify pro and con concerning the guilt, ostensibly guilt, uh, of Richard III, who was killed in a battle which led to the triumph of Henry VII, the father of Henry VIII, and the Tudor line. Now, historians have long debated pro and con, and Thomas More, of course, wrote the work that has most influenced thinking about Richard III. More was a toady of the Tudors, and he wrote a villainous, slanderous piece about Richard III. So, a person's perspective depends on how seriously they take Sir Thomas More. This trial is very interesting, not so much for what the historians had to say, but for what the lawyers had to say. And I submit that it's an important document for this reason. It tells us a great deal about lawyers and their abilities. And in that respect, it is a most remarkable little book. Lawyers going at an historical incident, centuries old, and bringing to bear the laws of evidence on the situation, have demonstrated that where history is concerned, historians could very well use some legal training. It's a remarkable work. The decision of the jury, obvious in the light of the evidence presented, was that Richard III was clearly innocent. The evidence indicated why it would have been a disaster, no matter what Richard III's wishes were to have executed the boys, the two sons of Edward, because it was precisely their execution that opened the way for his great enemy, Henry Tudor, who then executed those two princes. We don't know. Certainly, Richard did not publicize their death because it was a disaster for him. I submit that uh, although historians will pay no attention to this book, they should, because it tells us something about the importance of legal training and an understanding of historical evidence. Historians have a kind of open territory in that they can go into the past and make all kinds of suppositions, and are not accountable to a court of law, and some outrageous things have been written by historians. To cite one of the most fearful things, some historians, since revealed to 
to be homosexuals, have gone back and dirtied up a number of very prominent men in history by supposedly uncovering evidence of their homosexuality. One of the important instances of this was Richard Lionheart. Now, much could be said pro and con about Richard, but there is no evidence whatsoever that he was a homosexual. However, 20 years or more ago, a distinguished English historian, not known to be a homosexual, ostensibly uncovered data previously ignored that showed Richard to be a homosexual. Since then, all that has been exploded. There was not an iota of evidence. But historians can do that kind of outrageous thing. Otto Scott, in his book on the Secret Six, unfortunately now out of print, went into the history of John Brown and showed how much of what we know about John Brown is fiction, designed to make a hero out of a scoundrel. Well, now to another book which ties in with something we dealt with last time relative to the family. David Herlihy, H-E-R-L-I-H-Y, Medieval Household, published by Harvard University Press in 1985. A very uh, superior book. The book is important because it tells us a great deal not only about the medieval family, but about the ancient family by contrast. I wish Hurley would now go into a book on the ancient family to uh, call attention to the difference even more dramatically. But in his first chapter, he tells us, and I quote, there are no terms in either classical Greek or Latin precisely corresponding to our own word family. Then he goes on to deal with a Greek word which really meant generation, and it seems never to have meant family in the modern sense. There was no word in ancient Greek for the family as we understand it. Then, in classical Latin, the word familia did exist. But, as he says, and I quote, familia in classical usage is often synonymous with patrimony, his family, that is, his patrimony, writes the jurist Gaius, unquote. So that the term family had a very, very different thing. Moreover, as Hurley points out, the term did not include the husband. The family was his possession. So that he was not under authority and the familia was. Moreover, the idea of the family as a moral and a descent 
group was lacking. It was really the property or the dependence, sometimes only the servants of the household head. It was also a religious community charged with maintaining the cult of the household gods, but it had reference to the home or heart rather than the members thereof, so that the concept of the family as we know it was not in existence. With Christianity, the biblical, the Old Testament concept of the family as a moral unit as well as a blood unit came into Western history. It took some time for it to develop. The populations being pagan had a hostility to great change in this area. Let me add, the interesting fact is that the pagans did not like to change their family life, if we may use the term for what then existed, nor their diet. And so in these two areas there was a great deal of resistance to change. Moreover, the interesting fact is that there was a peculiar situation among the barbarians, which resulted in overpopulation and one reason for the barbarian pressures on the borders of the Roman Empire was because in terms of what they did with the land, very little, they were overpopulated. And so uh, the German tribes, for example, afflicted both parts of Asia and especially neighboring Europe as the surplus populations moved out of the forests to invade these areas. Moreover, the interesting fact too is that the life of a child among these barbarians was hardly a good one. The exposure of unwanted babies, both among Roman and non-Roman pagans, was commonplace. The children in a household of, let us say, a powerful Germanic tribal leader were reared with what Hurley, he says, benign neglect. Neither the sons of the chief nor the slave children were treated any differently. They were both neglected. They both grew up any way they could. So it was, in a sense, the survival of the fittest. Moreover, both in the pagan period and for some time thereafter, there was a problem in that there was always a great surplus of men over women in the Germanic tribes. The Germanic tribes had a peculiar custom whereby, uh, because of promiscuity, the, uh, one's origins were fixed in terms of the mother. It was not too safe to reckon in terms of the father. 
Thus the uncle, therefore, had a powerful influence on the boy because he was known to be a blood relative. The women got away with almost everything, and there was a reason why they did. When a child was born, in particular an infant girl, the grandmother, the mother of the mother, could determine whether that girl was to live or die. And if she pronounced the death sentence on that infant girl before it was put to the mother's breast to be fed, that girl died. This meant if she were present, she very often passed the death sentence upon the little girl. If the baby came while she was out somewhere, then the little girl had a chance of living. Now why this strategy? Well, it created a scarcity of girls. Given, to that, uh, given that and add to it the fact that the tribal chiefs and other tribal leaders usually had several wives, it meant that there was a considerable shortage of women. Many men could not have a wife, even if the girl babies had all lived. But with this infanticide of the girl babies, it meant that marriageable women were scarce, very scarce. So what happened? It meant that a girl to agree to marriage could demand a tremendous dowry and become very wealthy. It meant, tr too, that she could behave as she chose. She could be as promiscuous as she wanted. And her husband, having invested as much money as he had in her, and it being so difficult to get enough funds and assets and wealth together to get another woman had to put up with her. Well, this meant the women dominated the tribes. Their word was law. Even with the Germanic tribes going across the border to rape and to take women slaves, they could not remedy the inequity in the numbers of women as against men. Well, with Christianization, it took some generations to break that uh, pattern, to make it possible for the girl babies to live. Since under normal circumstances, more girls are born than boys, and more infant boys die than girls of childhood ailments. It meant that once Christianity prevailed, you had a surplus of women. And then the shoe was on the other foot, and the men lorded it over the women. They demanded a dowry before they would marry a woman. And they began to suppress and uh, tyrannize over their wives. And the entire condition and situation of women changed dramatically. You had then 
throughout Europe, in fact, the growing prevalence of a non-biblical, an anti-biblical dowry, whereby the man had to be bribed to take the wife instead of paying a dowry to the bride who then had that as protection if he strayed. It is interesting that the biblical pattern of the dowry was enforced upon Christians by the Council of Arles so that it was regarded as a Christian necessity. However, uh, when this was turned around, it upset the entire work of the church. It is interesting to note that it is difficult to reconstruct the pagan and the early medieval family life because most of the countries of Europe, as they became Christianized, began to suppress the evidence about their pagan pasts and their sins even after they were converted. One country was unique in that it told the truth without exception about its past and about its Christian history, about the sins of the saints, about life in general in their midst, and that was Ireland. So that uh, we know a great deal about the sins of early Ireland as well as its strength. The one country that was ready to tell the truth about itself uh, simply and directly without any qualifications. The interesting thing, too, is the work of the church. The church worked hard to regularize family life. Here as elsewhere, the work was slow, difficult, and always meeting with a great deal of resistance. However, as time passed, things began to change internally within the church. The medieval church in the early and middle areas did a remarkable job in strengthening and developing the family unit. However, in the later Middle Ages, certain things happened which disturbed and began to destroy what the church itself had created. And these changes came about from within the church. The first of these, says Hurley, is the feminization of sainthood. It is not that there were more women saints than men saints, although the number of women saints began to increase. But the saints were no longer the vigorous masculine figures that they had been earlier. A second characteristic of sainthood from the 13th century on is that most saints now were town dwellers, whereas originally they had been from the rural areas or had been pioneers on the frontiers. 
Of course, one reason for this is that the Dominicans and Fra Franciscans were the great promoters of sainthood in the late Middle Ages, and they worked primarily in the cities. But urbanization also will often lead, if there are not strong countercultural forces, to feminization. A third characteristic of late medieval sanctity was its strongly mystical orientation. Previously, the saints had often been men of action, men who were involved with the major trends and currents of the time. Now, there was more a withdrawal from the world. And this did not have a good influence because it led to the withdrawal of Christianity from the public arena. So it's curious. Late medieval sainthood was urban in orientation, and you would expect it to be involved in affairs all the more. But it was more withdrawn. It was now mystical, cloistered, less and less involved in the activities of the world. And even those who were men of action became saints more for their mystical side than for their activities. On to another book now, not a good one, quite indifferent in fact, but just for one or two items. Ian Wilson, Jesus, the Evidence, published by Harper and Rowe in 1984. For 1795. This is interesting for this uh, point. The first century AD, the time of our Lord, was regarded as the golden age of Judaism which tells us something of the direction it had taken. It was, uh, in some respects, the greatest generation in uh, Jewish religious history because of some of the great men. But on the other hand, that generation developed the faith in directions that were byways, that warped and twisted it, so that while it had the great men of Judaism, it did not have the Old Testament faith. On one point alone, we see how far they had strayed. Given the fact that in the Old Testament, you have a number of women of power and importance. Consider this statement, and I quote, it must be recognized that in Jesus' day almost any association with a woman outside one's immediate family was frowned upon. The Babylonian Talmud has a story of the Galilean Rabbi Yose being scolded for merrily asking a woman the way to Lydda. You stupid Galilean have the sages not commanded do not engage in a lengthy conversation with a woman. In first century Jewish society, women were second-class citizens. 
banned from the inner courts of the temple, banned from any part of the temple during their monthly periods, and at any time instantly divorceable by their husbands without any right of redress, merely by the writing of a notice to this effect, unquote. This was not the Old Testament pattern. It became the pattern in the first century. And it is one aspect of the life among many that is revelatory of the very great changes in the life of Israel. On to something more now. This is from a clipping sent in by one of you from the Royal Palm Beach uh, Town Crier. And it's an article about a pastor there in a Christian school. I quote, Yesterday, Pastor John O'Malley was delivering food to the needy. The day before, he was sitting in a jail cell. O'Malley was arrested Tuesday at Southwide Academy, located on the corner of Folsom Road and Southern Boulevard in Loxahatchee, and charged with obstructing justice after he told police officers and a health and rehabilitative services counselor that they were trespassing. According to police reports, Detectives Mark Evans and William Cussler and Health and Rehabilitative Services Counselor Kathy Oblov were looking for a possible alleged child abuse victim at the interdenominational school. O'Malley said Mrs. Oblov refused to identify herself and simply said she was with the HRS. Mrs. Oblov could not be reached for comment at the HRS offices and a phone number bearing her name has been disconnected. When the counselor wouldn't talk, I told her that she was trespassing, O'Malley said. I then turned to the police officer and started talking to him. He just kept walking in circles around me. Finally, I told him, hey, don't you realize that you're trespassing? Next thing I knew, I was thrown against the wall and was handcuffed. O'Malley said that after he was handcuffed uh, to a chair, the investigators produced no search warrant but began going through the rooms in the school looking for the 15-year-old girl. They came barging in the classroom and began going up the aisles looking for the at the names on the desks to find the girl, 16-year-old Joey Abbott said. They even went through her purse to find her. They told my friend that if he didn't tell where she was, he'd be arrested. The girl, however, was sitting at a nearby testing desk and did not identify herself. Officials later found her when her father arrived. The girl is now in the custody of her father. Parents of the children who saw the incident said they were outra outraged. Seeing the girl's purse searched and seeing their pastor handcuffed was emotionally and mentally damaging to the young students, they said. It shook the kids up. You don't expect this kind of thing to happen, said one parent who wished not to be identified. They didn't have a search warrant, and they didn't tell anybody who they were. Have you heard of Nazism? Well, this reminds me of Gestapo techniques. Calling the incident a Baptist Holocaust, O'Malley said the event possibly hurt the girl emotionally. I had one 16-year-old who was crying and kept saying to the p police officer, you can't arrest my pastor. 
O'Malley was taken to the county jail, booked and released later on his own recognizance. He has been given a notice to appear in court. I'm glad this thing is going before a judge, O'Malley said. He'll either tell me I have violated the law or that the other people are trespassing. The school's attorney told me that a whole bunch of constitutional laws were broken. O'Malley also said that the young children at the school have written Sheriff Richard Will, asking him not to hurt my pastor. Well, I think he's very, very overly optimistic because I have been in too many courts and seen too many judges to have their faith that the courts are going to right the situation. This type of incident is taking place again and again all over the country and rarely does it make the front pages. We are pretty far gone. And unless people turn around in their attitudes, unless they begin to support Christian candidates, we've had it. Next year, a friend of mine, Mark Siljander, will be up for re-election to the House of Representatives from Michigan. This will be his fourth term. Now, Mark has been called by people in Washington a real leader in Congress, not merely a man who votes wisely, but exercises leadership in the House. He helped in 1980 elect Reagan in Michigan. He carried the state with his activities. When Stockman resigned from the congressional office he held in Mark's district, Reagan, instead of supporting Mark Siljander, supported a liberal candidate. Mark is a Republican congressman from Michigan who has been opposed every time by his own party. And a tremendous war chest is being prepared to defeat him again. Well, unless Christians begin supporting men like Mark Siljander and others, we're in serious trouble. Now, I asked Mark the last time we were chatting on the phone, just a few days ago, I said, Mark, how many Christians have patted you on the back instead of giving you a check and said, well, brother, I'll pray for you, and he laughed. It's been an old experience with him and with others like him. Well, I pray for the judgment of God upon all people who are like that, who want the country to be different and gripe because it is what it is and they will not support their own. Let me pass on something else to you. This is the Rutherford Institute release of November the 22nd. In Washington, of course, the Redskins football games were very popular. In 1984, this Williamsburg businessman was arrested by the police because he had a banner which uh, he displayed at the game. And, and the banner simply read John 3.16, which uh, Francis 
Stephen Francis, the Williamsburg businessman, believes is the single most important statement of biblical truth. He was uh, taken from the game, threatened with arrest by a plainclothesman, and when he said that uh, other signs and banners were allowed in the, state, in the stadium and that he was discriminated against solely because his message was religious, they threatened him with arrest and then released him. The Rutherford Institute then worked with the Armory Board uh, about stadium policy and they then said that they had a policy allowing the display of all signs except those that are obscene or provide free advertisement of products or services. Well, in the assurance that the problem had been settled, Stephen Francis again hung a banner. And again, he was removed with city police. So, Rutherford Institute is working on that matter. In other words, anything is permissible except Christianity. The goal is, as John Whitehead has said, the privatization of religion so that there will be no sign, symbol, or evidence of it allowed in the public sphere or in everyday life. Hence, the war against Christmas crushes or displays in public places, and I believe the next step will be in private places. Already, of course, uh, it is rare to find any Christmas decorations that even use the word Christmas because the word Christ is in it. It's season's greetings, holiday greetings, and that sort of thing. The de-Christianization of American life is well underway. On to some other items. First of all, a remarkable book which would take hours to go through and do justice to has been published by the Sound Dollar Committee, P.O. Box 226, Fort Lee, New Jersey, 07024. The author is Edwin Vieira, Jr., V as in Victor, I-E-I-R-A. The title pieces of eight, the monetary powers and disabilities of the United States Constitution, a study in constitutional law. And that describes it. It is a study in constitutional law. The point of this study is not are the constitutional uh, provisions sound, but to go into the six constitutional provisions concerning money and to analyze what they meant to the framers and what they meant to the courts and what has happened in recent years. It's a very, very important study. Extremely important because it is one of the most masterly and thorough constitutional studies for some time. I heartily commend it to everyone who is at all interested in government, in the Constitution, and in money. Moreover, there are some very important sidelights. For example, this. Well, I quote,
contrary to the popular misuse of legal terminology. The federal government of the United States consists of five parts, Congress, the President, the Supreme Court, the states, and the people. So that the division of powers as it is normally discussed is all wrong. It's limited to the federal government and to what is in Washington, Congress, the President, and the Supreme Court. But according to the Constitution, the federal government consists in five parts. Not only these three, but the states and the people. A very important fact. And something that uh, more needs to be done with. Uh, the powers of the president with regard to sound money are very great also. There is so much here that is routinely neglected. Moreover, there are citations from the background in England, and uh, this alone is very important and worth the price of the book. It's interesting, for example, to read about the debates in the House of Commons dealing with the powers of the king and the powers of the state. And the statement made by Sir Thomas Wentworth, our laws are not acquainted with sovereign power. There spoke the voice of Christian England. And our Constitution totally eliminated the word sovereign and sovereignty in terms of that tradition. I regard this book as one of the most important that has come out for a long, long time. I urge you to get it if you are at all interested in politics or in law. Read it. Very, very important. Pieces of Eight, The Monetary Powers and Disabilities of the United States Constitution, A Study in Constitutional Law by Edwin Vieira, Jr., V-I-E-I-R-A, and published by the Sound Dollar Committee, P.O. Box 226, Fort Lee, New Jersey, 07024. I don't know the price of the book, but I urge you to write about it and order it. Well, on to another book now. I've mentioned John Whitehead, now to his most recent book, Parents' Rights by John Whitehead, published in 1985 by Crossway Books, Westchester, Illinois. Paperback for six ninety-five. The book, by the way, is dedicated to me, for which I'm grateful to John, a good friend. The book again is a gold mine on our history and parental rights. I won't try to give you the thesis, but just a few quotes to. Uh, 
tell you something about the contents of the book. John Adams had some good things to say on a great many subjects, and he stated in 1765 concerning the striking degree of literacy and learning throughout the colonies, and I quote, a native of America who cannot read or write is as rare an appearance as a comet or an earthquake, unquote. That was our literacy before the state took over education. Thomas Jefferson also rejected the notion of compuls compulsion in the area of education and upheld the rights of parents. He said, and I quote, it is better to tolerate the rare instance of a parent refusing to let his child be educated than to shock the common feelings and ideas by the forcible asportation and education of the infant against the will of the father, unquote. There's much, much more of the same caliber in this book. It's a gold mine of data and perspective. In fact, one of the uh, interesting statements quoted from one of the early writers like uh, quote it is marriage perhaps which give, has given man the best of his freedom given him his little kingdom his own within the big kingdom of the state given him his foothold of independence on which to stand and resist an unjust state man and wife, the king and queen with one or two subjects, and a few square yards of territory of their own. This really is marriage. It is true freedom. Given this perspective, you can understand why it was held by the colonists against England that a man's home is his castle, meaning his own free domain. The book definitely is worth your time. Very superior. Well, a book by Michael Edwards, Edwards spelled E-W-A-R-D-E-S, not a particularly good book, is entitled The Dark side of history, Magic in the Making of Man, uh, published in 1978 and now out of print. But all the same in his analysis and really uh, defense of magic, he does make some very, very interesting statements about the meaning of magic. Listen to this on page four. I quote, Magic has always been activist, a statement of faith in the capacity of man rather than in the compassion of God, unquote. In other words, magic is a form of humanism. Then uh, we have 
an interesting account of the number of people who strongly supported phrenology, the belief that the bumps on one's skull were revelatory of character. These included Herbert Spencer, Alfred Russell Wallace, the evolutionist, Gatey, Marx, George Eliot, Charlotte Bronte, Dickens, and the sociologist Comte. Very interesting. The enlightened men of their time were suckers for phrenology. Then uh, he has uh, some interesting uh, data on the theory of correspondences and its relationship to magic, the Renaissance and magic, and a great deal more that uh, from an historian's point of view would be of interest, but basically the perspective of the book would not be yours and mine. Another book that I read, an older one, which I had read in extensively some years ago, but I went back to it to read it carefully because it was revelatory of what has happened in our day. It is Norman St. John Stevens, Life, Death, and the Law, Law and Christian Morals in England and the United States, published in 1961. It deals with what was law in 1961 about contraceptives, human insemination, human sterilization, homosexuality, suicide, and euthanasia. And it is startling to see how greatly we have changed. The revolution we have had in 24 years and how our law from being heavily influenced by Christianity is now militantly anti-Christian. This is a very important study. And St. John Stevens did a remarkable bit of research originally, and I think it is more timely now and telling us what has happened to us. Well, our time is almost up. But I'd like to cite one thing more. In the Stockton Record, Stockton, California, for Wednesday, December 4, 1985, there is a front page article by Elizabeth Marin of the Los Angeles Times. Study shows California is a state of mind. What they found is that California is the area of innovation. That most, uh, more innovations take place in California, more scientific and other innovations than anywhere else in the country. So that there is a state of mind, they conclude that makes scientists, thinkers, and people generally more innovative in California than elsewhere. 
And one of the authors of the study uh, commented, on the silly side, you see hot tubs, things like that. California has been the land of the fad and the pop lifestyle. But at the same time, that type of easy acceptance of new lifestyles also has to do with easy acceptance of new ideas. And I don't think you can be an innovative mind without being iconoclastic, unquote. I don't altogether agree with that. I believe part of the reason for California's innovative mentality is that we have no past to glory in here. The West is new. In too much of the country, people act as though they are living in a museum, and if anyone brings in any change or innovation, they are sinners. In fact, they can get more worked up about someone who wants to change their town or city and about, say, some degenerates moving in. This kind of thing hampers people elsewhere. But I hope we stay young out here because the future is not commanded by people who look backward. Well, our time is up. God bless you all. And thank you for listening again.